came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. How are you? I'm all right. Season five, episode three. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. How's the summer going? Pretty busy. I thought it would be more relaxed, but it's busy. How about you? <laughs> yeah, like don't you think it every year, right? I mean, so I, I'm going to share with you my biggest disappointment in adult life, right? Okay, go. <laughs> of course. So, you know, when I went to school in Russia and then in yeah. the university, we had this three month summer holiday. So you finish on the like 30th of May and then you go back on the 1st of September, right? And three months, you're, you're all no parents you know because they have to work you're like freedom you watch telly i went to the library because i was that kind of, course of child you did. of course you did. <laughs> yeah, of course i did um but anyway three months of like going to the library every day what can be better right yes and <laughs> and now so that was the problem because that was during my formative years and yeah. i blame my education for that so i'm used to i've been formed that in a way that I expect three months off over the summer. And so every time the summer comes and I'm really excited in the end of May thinking, oh, it's summer and summer. And then I'm really disappointed because I can't take any time off like two weeks if I'm yeah. lucky, right? Wow. So you have had your expectations set very high for what summer should be. Right. And now they've just been ruined and it's been yeah. 20 years since I've graduated from school yeah. and yet my expectations remain and every summer I'm bitterly disappointed. Oh, <laughs> but anyway, at least we get to talk to interesting people, right? So that kind of saves some summer yeah. excitement. I mean, us. it's, uh, we stay busy. We've been, um, recording with some really great guests. And I enjoyed the hazards workshop that we were at recently. Yeah, and, uh, that was what a couple of weeks ago. That was yeah, great. Yeah, met, met some new people there and appreciate everything the team at Natural Hazard Center did f to pull that off again virtually. Totally. totally. Yeah. And I said it last year. I'm going to say it again. I hope next year it will be in person. Um, so I get to actually meet everyone. <laughs> and I hope that we're not saying the same thing next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah i think our expectations may be a little bit too high mm -hmm. but on that natural hazards huh that's a good segue in most of our episodes we mention one or the other natural hazard but we've only really talked about hazards per se um in season one when jasmine scarlett came on the podcast and discussed different hazards with us, but also in the context of disasters, of course. And so today we've decided to return to the discussion about hazards and in particular about um, natural exogenous processes, in other words, hazards driven by gravity. And our guest today is Dr. Christopher Gomez. Chris is a professor at the Graduate School of Maritime Sciences at Kobe University in Japan. His research deals with chains of environmental processes 
that act at the landscape scale, integrating hydrology, sediments, vegetation, and human activities. His work has an emphasis on hazardous earth processes, and we're very excited to listen to what I think is quite a fresh perspective for the podcast. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, guys. Thanks so far for having me. So uh, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, what got you interested in hazards? Why? Why do you care? Okay, that, that's that's a good question. Um, I think that one element that was pivotal uh, in my career, maybe, or my young career, I was still looking at my sediments and volcanoes in Indonesia when I was a master's student. And that's just a bit before the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami occurred in Indonesia. And I got into a research project on that tsunami. And I think I was still very happy at that time to go and have a look at, um, you know, what I was doing as a geoscientist. But you just can't get to a place like the 2004 tsunami in North Sumatra in Indonesia without just starting to think about the people there. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. uh, that's what really changed the way I was looking at things. It was not only about uh, processes anymore. Uh, you you can't escape people there. We are not on Mars or anywhere else. So I think that's what really got me started thinking, well, there is maybe a better use of my time uh, than just looking at my sediments only. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, escaping people. Although I think even on Mars, thanks to Bezos, <laughs> we won't be able to escape people soon either. Um, but nevertheless, you know, this is irrelevant. Um, I think it's quite interesting because very often when, of, you know, of course, when we talk about disasters, we talk about people and processes and, you know, not just natural processes, but political process, social process and so on and so forth. But at the same time, quite often when we talk to natural scientists, um, people are conveniently ignored. So, you know, why is that? And, and how? Is this the education system or is it kind of the way we think about hazards? Well, I think that uh, it's maybe a bit uh, of both, actually, the uh, way we think about hazards. And what really shocked me when I got there with my colleague is the fact that uh, every day a lot of my colleagues were saying, oh, it's rice again, or it's rice and rice again. And nobody was thinking, well, if we only have rice every day, it's because there is no more food in the area. And we are coming like 10 Europeans or 20 mm-hmm. and going and eat the food of local when the supply are scarce already. And um, I think that from then education perspective, people were just thinking about their science and nothing else. And, and it's one of the issues uh, very often. Uh, people think that science has should go first and has a prime when uh, in disaster impacted area. Well, absolutely not. Um, so I think that's what got me uh, maybe out a bit of the traditional geosciences and more into the natural hazard space. Mm. And yeah, we will come back to kind of Western privileges um, later on um, on the podcast because there is a lot to unpack there, I think. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Chris, about um, a hazard that you write about sometimes, landslides. And we haven't really discussed landslides on the podcast before, but they're they're quite a common phenomena and range in scope and impact. And the the literature and research shows us that very often humans, again, have quite a role in these but so often publications and reports focus mostly on impacts and destruction or monitoring landslides, 
So I wonder if you could speak from your perspective about developmental processes in kind of chain of, of events um, that lead to landslides, such as urbanization and deforestation. I would like to take a step back first. Um, landslides are a natural process. Uh, as long as you have a slope um, and you have a mountain which is being built up, you're going to have soils and landslides occurring on them with, mm. with or without human. Uh, so that, that needs to still be clear. Um, the thing is like very often because a lot of the hazard space started in geosciences before migrating historically uh, at university in more social sciences, um, we, it's very convenient to think about those as natural processes. And that's one of the reasons uh, why very often it's easy to look at the consequences saying, oh, look at that balance slide, what it did to us again, mm. uh, instead of trying to think, well, uh, what is our role in there? And urbanization is one of the important roles. If you think simply about just cutting a slope and building a road on it, uh, you can very easily that a lot of time when you have landslide or debris flow, uh, that landslide is going to start right where the road is. And there is no coincidence there. It's the impact of people encroaching on the environment that are going to trigger those landslides. Um, when it comes to deforestation, it's a more complicated issue. We all know that deforestation is at the source of erosion in a lot of places, um, creation of badlands. So that, that's an issue on its own. But um, it's not because you have forests that it's safe. Uh, if you look at it in Japan, for instance, until the 1960s here, we had a, had a lot of deforestation. So a lot of mountains were totally bald. For those of you who know Japan, it's very green. And people think that it was like this um, for centuries. It's not the case at all. Uh, after the end of the Second World War, a lot of mountains were perfectly bare, um, for instance, where I live near Kobe. And they just reforested everything just to avoid having those landslides and debris flow. The things like reforestation, even the forest is here now, doesn't mean that the land is stable. Uh, for instance, a lot of the reforestation, and we see that also in Europe as well, we often choose pine trees. Uh, we tend to grow on very thin soils, just a few or one meter from the surface. You have roots, but nothing underneath. So when you have pouring rainfall on top of that, what's going to happen is that the trees are going to go with the slope very easy. Mm. So uh, having the forest deforestation or reforestation is not a question of having it or not. It's also a question of how you do it and what is happening. Um, and in Japan, if we mix the question of urbanization and population change with the forest, for instance, we have a very interesting situation where they have reforested those slopes um, to stop landslides, and it works in a lot of places. The things like with the uh, economic of the 20th century, a lot of uh, the harvesting in Japan has become more and more expensive. So they source their timber overseas instead of cutting the trees that were supposed to be uh, cut on, on slope. And now we have bigger and bigger, I mean, like heavier and heavier trees on those slopes. And this put more pressure uh, on the soil when uh, mm -hmm. we are about to have a landslide. And at the same time, you know, if you have a tree which is about 10 or 20 or 30 centimeters in diameter, or one which is 50, 
uh, when it's leaving the slope and going down, it doesn't do the same damage at all. So uh, blaming urbanization or blaming deforestation um, is not an easy task because uh, the solution sometimes of bringing back the trees, for instance, doesn't solve the problem. And if you think about uh, human encroachment as well, I will stay in Japan because it's an example, a place I know very well, uh, because we have a shrinking population. So people who used to be living uh, in the countryside and exploiting the lands and having farmlands uh, on the slopes. Uh, you have to, uh, you used to have uh, rice fields in a lot of places. And now that people are gone, they are just uh, putting back trees in those areas. So where you had rice fields, you now have trees that are planted. And what's happening is that the trees are actually going through the soil, which was made of clay, to keep the water on top of the surface in the rice field. And the water now goes into the soil underneath. So it eases the landslide. So it's not because you had human and the human came and cut the slope that you had more landslide. It's actually the post-management here, which is an issue. Interesting. Do you find that there's different perceptions of like what it, what is creating risk between different uh, fields of science and the public and you know policymakers, or do are they on the same page? I don't think any of them uh, is on the same page. <laughs> uh, the the very reason behind it is oh, one of them, I think. Um, is the fact that they also have different agenda. Um, a lot of um, the engineering, uh, the programs that are built to stabilize slope or stop landslides have also politi political agenda and economic agenda behind. Um, for instance, in Japan, and we, we are still in Japan, sorry, um, after a disaster, you have a tech force that um, comes in and they bring a lot of investment from the government to the local area and that creates jobs. So locals are very happy about it. But at the same time, sometimes it's not necessary at all. So there is this huge pile of money which is supposed to be used to put some concrete on the slope or reshape the slopes. And um, I've seen places where that, that was not a necessity. But the local population are very happy to see that happening because it means employment, it means money that comes to the community. But in terms of hazards and what it does to the hazards, uh, sometimes it's not that significant. Mm -hmm. So unless you really see those different mechanisms at the back, uh, it, it's really hard to say uh, who is on the same page with who because uh, it really depends on what layer you're looking into. I'm kind of just, just thinking very quickly through it because I don't know anything about landslides. Um, and I wonder, you know, and I'm thinking of China mainly, for example, right? When the landscape has been kind of so re-engineered, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, say, northwest of China, right? Where there is yellow, yeah. um, yellow earth, 
Lus, right? Is this how yeah, you say it yeah. in English? Yeah, the Lus. Um, and and so the but the the landscape has been re-engineered and over-engineered. And having having looked at what's been done there and having kind of connected some researchers there, it seems that it is easier very often for you know in terms of dust risk reduction for some people to actually um, keep addressing the landslide and kind of keep rebuilding the infrastructure on, on, you know, on top of it instead of just stopping the development there full stop. Um, at which I personally find quite problematic, right? Because the, the exposure is constantly there. And of course, people who live there are usually um, either national minorities or people who, who are going there to look for jobs, right? So that they are marginalized populations very often. So, so what what do we do? You know, should we just let the kind of the nature be, um, just because the it, it it is such because of its characteristic, um, or do we have enough technology and should we be relying on that technology and scientific knowledge to kind of keep building and building until we know how to deal with it? I'm going to leave a bit the landslide for a while and go back to Christchurch in New Zealand where. We had some flooding events, and after the earthquake of 2011, I was living and working there at that time. And what was really interesting is that the place which is near the estuary, very lowland, uh, soon to be uh, fully or temporarily flooded uh, with any rainfall, uh, the government decided at that place that nobody should live, and they bought the land back from the Christchurch City Council. And a couple of months later, or years later, the city council decided, well, you know, selling that land that we received, we got money already for, would be very nice, actually. But we, we cannot really sell that very uh, at a good price, but we can sell it cheap. So they were actually selling those land for redevelopment, or they were uh, suggesting it. I don't know what happened exactly with that at the end. Um, and the idea was to sell it cheap so that people actually don't have that much money. Uh, would be able to uh, buy land again in those locations. And of course, you target minorities, you target a certain yeah. kind of population, you just see the dream of owning a house, but you just put them in such a hard situation because insurance companies don't just don't want to know about it. So people will get all their livelihood in one place knowing that they could lose everything all at once. So it's first, I think it's not for landslide as well. Not only a question of uh, nature that we let be, uh, it's also a question of management and being an ethical management and what um, uh, government should be able to do or should do in these places. Mm -hmm. From the natural perspective, uh, I think that we, we have at least two different uh, directions. I'm going to look at Indone uh, Indonesia or Japan and New Zealand. And I remember that in New Zealand for landslide, a lot of times people were saying, well, there is place in other location. We can always move a house, move a road, uh, because there is that space which is available. When you're in Indonesia or in Japan, it's not the case. There, there is nowhere else to go. Um, so very often you have to live with the risk as well, especially when engineering is just not cutting it. And there are things we just can't stop. Uh, and some of those landslides are just too big for present in day uh, engineering. Um, so that, that's a real dilemma, actually. So in the first place, you should maybe not let people uh, develop in this area, encourage them not to. But once they, you, they are there, um, there is no silver bullet. 
uh, at least in some places where it's overcrowded, I think. Yeah, I wish. I wish there were a silver bullet, but there never will be, I guess, right? Until uh, development is the priority that um, the countries strive to achieve. Um, and I use development and kind of in speech marks. And it also depends how you develop. When you look at, for instance, yeah. communities in the Pacific that are prone to typhoon, there are places where they move the village every couple of months. Just before the typhoon season comes in, they go in the lee side. So, because they know the, the village would never survive. And, uh, it's our Western culture of being sedentary, which is doing a lot of problem in a lot of places because we're not uh, allowing people to move. And this idea of development as being fixed with concrete is just sometimes not adapted at all. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so talking of Western culture, this is the best segue <laughs> you gave me. Um, so I was reading the, your chapter that um, will be featuring the upcoming disaster risk book. And you explicitly write um, in the chapter when you're talking about classification of landslides is that that classification um, is the way that it is presented in Anglo-Saxon literature. And I, you know, I absolutely loved it because you kind of, you emphasize so clearly that this is um, the Western perspective, which we don't see very often when we read about hazards in particular. And, you know, of course, through uh, various different conversations that we've had um, in the past month about the manifesto, right? And in your previous work, particularly the paper um, on the research gold rush, um, it is clear that you are very passionate and also kind of very respectful of other knowledges. Um, yet very often when we do research in disaster science and disaster risk production, it, I guess this power relationship between the local and the researcher, and I use local as a, as a power statement, right? They're pretty norm normalized. Um, and we don't really talk about um, this Western and non-Western perspectives because perhaps um, science is seen as objective. Um, what are your thoughts on that? When you talk about power relation in hazard spaces and research in hazards, uh, the first thing that springs to my mind is an experience I had a couple of years ago in Indonesia. I was uh, in the office of one of the dean at UGM University, and it was during an international program with Europe, and that was just after the eruption of Mount Merapi. And I remember quite vividly one person I wouldn't like to say colleague from uh, Europe was telling uh, my Indonesian colleague, okay, that's great. You guys did uh, dig holes to get your apparatus down to monitor uh, the groundwater and other parameters, but you guys don't know what you're doing. So you're going to pull out your, your different equipment and let us put ours inside. So like, okay, guys, very good. You are perfect to just dig holes, but that's about all. And that's, researcher was saying that very seriously, thinking that, well, you know, I come from Europe, so I know better. And it's exactly the same problem than you, that you have with knowledge. Um, people in Indonesia or in Japan or in New Zealand for the Maori, for instance, they didn't wait for having any Western arriving on the land and tell them, well, that's a landslide, you know. It's like, oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so th this idea of uh, having the knowledge, European-born knowledge, uh, on a higher level than others, um, I think it's a fallacy. And I think a lot of people will just listen to that now. We're going to think, well, you know, it's science. Come on. Uh, mm. 
yeah, it's science is perfect, but let's think about within science. If you think about quantum mechanics, for instance, uh, quantum mechanics cannot be explained by that science that we use in natural hazards. The Newtonian science, the Newtonian physics doesn't work. So how can you explain that this uh, wonderful science that should be explaining everything in the domain of hazards and disaster risk doesn't work in some parts of physics? Um, here again, I think that once we leave our cocoon from uh, Western culture and get outside, we can discover that there are other forms of creating and recording knowledge that are very powerful. And they're also very powerful when it comes to saving lives. Uh, I've seen more uh, local knowledge helping local people than I've seen physics or mathematics or any other geoscientific models for, the, for this case. I think it's also about like um, the divide between people who are affected and the external experts who who come in with a very different way of um, of seeing the world and yeah. like different of uh, yeah different epistemology right and yeah. and then the the resulting projects are often um, not really grounded in and not really centering the people who should be centered. So yeah, there, there's just so, so many issues with this. And I, it's really encouraging to see the hazards and disaster community um, maybe talking more about this um, through the manifesto and other efforts. I think um, we're really seeing it coming, bubbling to the surface and um, a lot of discussions happening, which is actually a good thing, I think. So I want to um, ask you, Chris, about the No Natural Disasters campaign on social media. And you're probably aware that this often gets pushback from geoscientists. Um, and they're often not happy with the idea that disasters are not natural. And we see this especially um, with examples of earthquakes and volcanoes. So I wanted to ask you, um, why do you think there's so much resistance to this within um, those who study hazards? And following from that, do you have any ideas about how we could maybe talk more clearly about hazards and disasters to show the clear difference between the two? Yes, indeed. Um, I think, again, it's a cultural and historical issue eventually here. Um, I, I do like the term that uh, Ilan Kelman notably used on that uh, about the fact that there is no natural, not such a thing as a natural disaster. And I would totally agree with him, even if I come from the field of geoscience. Uh, now, um, why do we have this such a rebuttal from uh, the field of geoscience? Uh, I think we touched about it a bit earlier. Um, hazards, disaster risk, disasters, all of that used to be the field of geoscientists, like their own space. Mm. And all of a sudden, you have people coming and say, well, you know, like disasters also involve people. Mm. And uh, there is more uh, than just looking at uh, the natural processes into that. 
Um, the, the main difference for me, of course, is the fact that there is not such a thing as a natural disaster. Uh, and if you think about one of the motto, which is used also in the earthquake industry, that says that earthquakes don't kill people, buildings do. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Um, if you go to uh, Indonesia, for instance, um, we have it in 2016 in central Java, the Bantul earthquake. And that, that was a strong jolt. But when you look at uh, where people lost their lives, uh, this is mostly in buildings of Western construct. Mm. Uh, what do I mean by Western construct? means that they were built out of brick and mortar. But local built, local knowledge used building uh, that we call Joglo in Indonesia, uh, they are timber frame building. Mm. Those just saw the jolt coming and that was it. None of those fell down. None of the buildings that were made of bamboo fell down either. Mm. It was only the building made of uh, concrete and mortar. So when you think about this as a disaster, loss of lives, loss of livelihood, well, it's not the earthquake. It's definitely the building. Mm. So disasters are not natural for sure. Um, it's the same uh, when you look at the Christchurch earthquake in 2011. Most of the buildings that went down, all beautiful buildings made of bricks, uh, technology and know-how imported from the UK, from England and other parts where uh, people came from at that time. But it's not the earthquake that killed people. It's the masonry that fell on their head. So when you think about it as a disaster, nobody's going to argue that it was the earthquake. It was the building. It was the way we built. So it's the culture. So um, it's the way we develop again. Mm. For natural hazards, uh, I'm more happy to keep hazards as an element which is almost natural. So most of my colleagues will tell me, tell you, well, you know, natural hazards, those are natural. That's why we call them natural hazards. And mm -hmm. they are staying on the geoscience side, no culture, no people there. Well, you know, I'm quite happy with that. Uh, think about your volcanic eruption. That's nobody pushing the button there. Mm -hmm. That's natural. Uh, when you have a typhoon, you can still argue without the climate change that most of typhoons still occur naturally. But um, actually, I'm not totally happy with that definition. Uh, when you think about landslide, a landslide which is uh, 100 meters tall, several tons, several thousands of tons of material, that's a hazard for sure. Mm. Now, if tomorrow morning when you wake up in your garden, some of your pots just went down with the wind and just blew some dirt on your patio, for instance, well, that's not going to be a hazard. But the process is maybe the same. It's, you can have a small landslip. You can have a small movement with the rain in your garden. Well, it's not going to be a hazard. So how, why is it that we think about those half a mountain going down with a given process when it's much smaller? We are not looking at it as a hazard anymore. Mm. And it's quite simple. Uh, it's the way we look at it. It's the way we think about it. It's the size of the human compared to that natural event. So 
There are natural processes, there are natural events, but when it comes to hazards, I'm not quite sure that hazards are that natural after all. I think what I'm hearing you say is that not every natural phenomena is a hazard, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And to decide whether they become a hazard or not, very often we are going to use the human scale, time scale and space scale as uh, a measure of judgment. Mm. So this doesn't make natural hazards ha natural anymore. I, I really like this. You know, I, I've been thinking about this um uh, this a lot, right? Because it, it came um, in a conversation kind of recently, and I I really liked what 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 you said in one of the exchanges. In that perhaps you know we may not kind of have enough science, or you know maybe science hiding its own failure to actually understand, right, and explain the natural process, um, because it allows us to frame the whole discussion of natural hazards in a completely different way and perhaps shift it from from a person like you said right um to 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 the environment but then i suppose the argument is that all the environment that we are surrounded um by isn't natural either right and if we follow the uh, the logic of kind of uneven uneven development um like smith logic um nature isn't natural anymore well um it depends where you are uh, i remember when uh, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, might be more than 20 years ago now, uh, <laughs> I had kids in uh, southern Japan. I asked them to draw a natural landscape. And if you're in Europe, they are going to draw you trees and some grass and some mountains. And I was surprised to see that that natural landscape had also concrete elements. Hmm. And for them, well, that was part of nature. And... Um, it's also, again, a cultural uh, view of things, thinking that nature is not nature anymore. Um, it works as long as we think of ourselves as being outside nature, so we go and disturb it. But in places where humans are integral to nature, this concept doesn't really exist, and anything which is modified by human beings in nature is still natural because we are part of it. Now, this uh, question of uh, natural hazards being natural or not, I think it's, it's actually not a new question at all. Uh, when you think about the, the concept of landscape, uh, there is in geography, or there has been in geography, a debate about whether the landscape was a construct or if it's something that existed on its own, if you don't look at it. And being in Japan, for me at least, uh, a landscape is definitely a construct because, you know, I cross uh, the road at the green light, but my colleagues in Japan cross uh, the road at the blue light. And when I look at that bright yellow sun, they look at the bright red sun. Mm. So even the colors for them looking at the same thing are totally different. And I think for the space of natural hazards, uh, natural in brackets, uh, we, we have exactly the same kind of issues here as well. This is so interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I really do hope we, we continue this conversation because it really allows us 
um, to challenge how, how we think about disasters and, and um, the way we position them, I guess, and the way we write about them. Um, so thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for, for, for this conversation, for this discussion. Um, we will, as always, link some of your papers to the show notes. Um, and we hope you'll come back to the podcast again soon. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Xenia, Chase and me, Christopher Gomez, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.